mean, it's kind of cute, right? Hello, and welcome back to Kinda Cute, and if you're new here, welcome. I'm Bailey Evan, your host, and on Kinda Cute, we discuss articles from the cut and my general pop culture musings. First of all, I want to give a big thank you to Marissa, Liv, Babylove2101, and Terea for leaving me very nice reviews. If you haven't rated and reviewed Kinda Cute on Apple Podcasts yet, I'd really appreciate it, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's get into episode 52. It was the picture heard round the world. Kristen Cavallari snuggled up next to her high school ex and Laguna Beach co-star Stephen Coletti. That was my audition for the now uh, non-existent E! News. So guys, can you believe that E! News is no longer? That is what I cut my baby pop culture teeth on, and now it is done. It existed for over 30 years. It is the end of an era. I like really can't believe it. Obviously, E! Network still exists, but the program E! News is no longer. And I would think that that means that you know, things like Daily Pop are still going to exist. And to be completely honest, since I cut the cable cord quite a few years ago, I actually haven't watched E! News. And I really miss it because that was just a staple in my life. Just coming home, watching that. I'd watch the repeats. I'd watch the red carpet get ready. I just, I loved it. And yeah, going back to Kristen and Steven, I also can't believe that happened. And apparently Jay Cutler wasn't too happy because shortly after his Instagram account was deleted. But who knows if that was actually a move on Kristen's part because rumor has it that Kristen totally controlled his Instagram account. So maybe she still had the login info. But I just want to say that they have both aged like a fine bottle of wine. They can both still get it. Shout out to them. They are looking fine. Kristen's voice is like nails on a chalkboard. Oh, God, stop it. <laughs> she started freaking out when he disappeared to scare us all with an embarrassment. Was she like, Stephen, where are you? Stephen? Stephen? For like 15 minutes, I'm like trying to sleep. That's all I can hear. It's like echoing. In other scandalous news, Ellen DeGeneres has come under fire recently for poor work conditions. Things like not allowing staff to look at or speak to her. And on top of that, just general harassment, uh, racist attitudes in the workplace that even if they weren't directly coming from her, they were perpetuated and not, you know, helped by her in any ways. So I figured now would be a perfect time to tell my Ellen DeGeneres story. So back a few years ago when One Direction was still together, RIP, I somehow got a ticket to go see them perform on the Ellen show. And, you know, obviously it's free. You just apply to get it. So Elena came with me because she was like my ride or die with anything that was insane like that because you always get these tickets like a couple days before. And usually it's not cheap to get a cross-country ticket to L.A. on that short of notice. But I think we ended up getting an okay deal and we stayed at this like super cute hotel. And I think we were actually in Burbank. I want to say that's where her studios are. So not in L.A. proper. Um, but it was thrilling. I just had the best time. But it's also incredibly stressful. And I think I've told this story before in a shorter format. But basically, we woke up at the crack of dawn because there is hell hath no fury like a One Direction fangirl. And those people will camp out for days even when they're told they cannot. So we woke up at like 3 a.m. We went over. It was like the Universal Studios parking lot, which is where we were supposed to meet. And the 
the already problematic thing about these shows that I've noticed after doing a few of them, like doing the VMAs, doing the Grammys, there's always a severe lack of communication because they just don't give a shit about you. You are there to make it look poppin' on TV. And for some reason, their idea of it looking poppin' on TV is just having multiple bodies in one place. So we get there, we're waiting in this line, it has the little barrier set up like you would have in any line, you know, at like an amusement park or something. It's in the parking garage. And this line, when we get there, is already massive, like hundreds of people, okay? And we're like, oh, we're fucked. Like, we're going to be so far back. But as we've also learned from these things is that sometimes it doesn't matter where you are in the line because sometimes they'll just randomly place you places. They'll pull you out. They'll put you in different lines. You never know. So, for example, like when we went to the VMAs the first time, they pulled us out and they put us in the like Rihanna section, quote unquote, because they said we had like an urban look, which to my white ass is very flattering. So anyways, we're in this Ellen, this Ellen line with no information. We're like devastated that we got there so early and we're so far back. Again, we have no idea what's going on. Well, it comes to be that we find out that we are getting bus to another location. But we only find this out after waiting in this line for five hours probably. And people the entire time, and it's we're old. We're old as shit at this point, okay? Like I'm in law school. And, oh, I'm out of law school? Bailey, that must have been Oh, she's right. I was full on like you're right. I was full on a lawyer practicing law. Oh, this is even worse. And the other people there are like 16 years old. So I'm exposing myself right now. Uh, I didn't give a shit. I was living. I was I was like, you know what? We can legally drink. This is what's up. Like, I'm closer to 30 than 18. It's great. Um, which makes my behavior that I'm about to describe to you even more embarrassing. So anyways, I'll try to keep this. What really is a long story just because of the long amount it takes. We decide when we realize that they're going to bus us over that it's somehow in our best interest to be on one of the earlier buses and because we are at this point so pissed that so many people have cut us in line we decide we are going to vault over one of the the what are those things called that like section off lines I call it like a barrier but you know they're they're like a little higher than hip waist. Your coochie's going to get hurt if you vault yourself over it. And I was wearing a dress and my coochie did get hurt because I hit it on it. Because in this like act of desperation, I just decide I'm going to vault myself over the barrier with just a look at Elena to follow suit. But we have like, you know, telekinesis. No, not telekinesis. Telepathy. <laughs> Thank God my producer Kenzie's back. We have telepathy when it comes to these things. So she follows suit. We are now cut many people. People are screaming at us. It is like a Salem witch hunt, okay? They are like, those girls. And I'm like, where were you people earlier? Is it just because we're old? Is this ageism? So we somehow, guys, this story, it sounds unbelievable. And I'm sure a lot of you are just like, who fucking cares? This is One Direction. But (laughs) you have to understand, like, this was our Beatles, okay? This just meant everything to us. So we get in this bus and we were at the very last row in the bus. And somehow this is the last bus that is like in the pit of the performance happening because everyone else is up in like bleachers. And not that we were super close or anything, but we were so much closer than the people in the bleachers. 
this is completely irrelevant to what I'm about to tell you, but I just wanted to give you context. So we are like so hyped up that we are on this bus. We are like always trying to get in with the people who work there. A, because we're nice people. She's from the Midwest and has like, is like the most polite person I know. And I like to think as a Floridian, I'm pretty nice myself, albeit crazy like the rest of us. So we're chatting people up and there's this one girl and she's explaining that she just has been working this job temporarily because she was looking for work and her friend said that she could get her position, you know, basically hurting people for this, for like the special events that Ellen was putting on, like these concerts. And we were like, oh my God, is it amazing? And she just deadpan looks at us and she goes, no, it's fucking terrible. And we're both shocked. Elena and I are just like, what? <laughs> like we're thinking live, working at Ellen is this absolute dream job. Like the best thing we could ever ask for. And this is what gets told to us. So that's my Ellen DeGeneres story uh, that I gave you way more details than you needed. But sometimes I just have to relive my youth, aka when I was 26 years old and it wasn't that long ago, but you know what I mean. All right, so next up, I wanted to talk about the Megan Fox Machine Gun Kelly relationship because we've covered this before. It's definitely officially official now. I don't know why in my mind, all the other times I've spoken about this couple, I thought Megan was so much older than Machine Gun Kelly, but she's 34 and he's 30. So it's really not a huge age gap. It's basically, you know, like when you're a senior and a freshman in college, totally fine. And uh, <laughs> Brian Austin Green, though, is 47, which I think is kind of why I thought she was older and because they have multiple children together and they've been married a while. So <laughs> what I want to talk about and maybe if you follow pop culture at all, you've seen this because it's so funny. So she posts a picture of the two of them and the caption is achingly beautiful boy. My heart is yours. And then Brian Austin Green posts an Instagram and it's one you can scroll through, you know, so there's multiple pictures and it's all of his kids and he captions it, achingly beautiful boys, my heart is yours. Now, if that is not some shaderade, I do not know what is. I love it. I mean, I would love it more if it was the female in the relationship being salty, but that level of pettiness I'm just like, okay, Brian, like you've also been pictured hanging out with like Courtney Stodden. So let's not be throwing stones in a glass house. I wanted to give you guys a Bon Appetit update because we talked about it a ton in episode 44. So it's official that Rick Martinez, Sola, and Priya Krishna are no longer working at Bon Appetit Video. All of them have said that they will still work to produce recipes. So they're going to be working on the editorial side at times, but they will not be working on the video side. This confirms to me that what we talked about earlier with Condé Nast Entertainment being a separate entity and them being the ones having these really problematic contract issues. But I'm just so shocked. I'm like, wow, you really had the opportunity to fix things, give these people a fair contract. And even with everything going on, you could not give these three people the contract they deserved. It's just shocking to me. And I would think that lawyers were involved. And I'm like, is your bottom line really that tight that you can't take some of the Mondo money you're making off of Claire's videos and give them what they deserve? It just... it. It blows my mind. And Priya also pointed out that 
Hunzi has been suspended for, I believe it was seven seven weeks at this point, and there's been no update as to his status. Now, Hunzi, if you'll recall, he is the video for It's Alive, which is one of the most popular videos on Bon Appetit's YouTube platform. It's the one with Brad Leone, and Matt Hunzi is a white man. And he apparently was suspended for being very vocal about the racist practices of Condé Nast. So it's all just so sloppy. And I'm actually surprised that Rick Priya and Sola are even agreeing to stay on Bon Appetit's editorial side because this is just so... I think I want to run from Condé Nast, but I totally respect their decisions. And I really hope that in the end, this will give them leverage and maybe they can a year from now, a couple months from now, get the contract they deserve wherever that may be. TMZ informed me that Jennifer Garner and Bradley Cooper were seen enjoying a flirty beach day together in Malibu. New couple alert. Sorry, that's my other E! News. <laughs> Staying audition. But I'd like to say that they did work on Alias together, so maybe they are just old friends. I don't know if we really need to read into it. But honestly, she was always too good for Ben Affleck, and I hope she finds love and happiness. I think she should look outside of Hollywood, but... If Bradley's what she needs right now, get it, girl. I have an Anthony and Martha Stewart feud update for you guys. I'm sorry we have so many updates. I feel like during the a portion of COVID, I was getting no celebrity content. It was actually making my job a little hard. Uh, I realize it's because there was much more important things going on in the world. But now it's like everything's come back with a vengeance and I can't keep up. So... <laughs> Martha has a show called Martha Knows Best and as a part of it she has her poor Stockholm Syndrome gardener hold the phone for her we talked about him before like I really want him to he he might be the new free Britney like free Martha's gardener so he holds the phone for her while she FaceTimes like the queen can't even hold her own damn phone while she FaceTimes and so she's talking to Anthony and he's like, you know, I really I just want to apologize like when I didn't tag your dogs and your horse and your stable and whatever the fuck their names are. Betonois, Shay Tao, Shay Matante, I don't whatever their names are. I'm sorry I didn't tag them in the Instagram. And she's like, well, I have to tell you, but that um, it was really the lack of thank you not note that got me, not the lack of tagging. <laughs> so she just full on calls him out on a face time while her gardener is holding her phone for not sending a thank you note but you know what I'm just thankful that I send a thank you note for everything in my life so and that is something that was instilled with me in me at a young age even though my own mother she'll write thank you notes and I'll find them like two years later in her glove box I send my damn thank you notes so I know that if I ever meet Martha I will not be caught up in this messiness because she will get the most effusive thank you note and a batch of my favorite cookies all right guys our first cut article of the day we are talking yoga to the people's dark secrets by madeline Aguilar. now we're doing a little bit of a deep dive today because this is a long article this episode's already gonna i can tell it's gonna run long but i hope you like feel like that this weekend so a little bit of background first Yoga to the People was started as a donation-based yoga class, pay what you can. It was supposed to not have ego, make yoga more accessible. It was started by a man named Greg Gamucho, who in New York's East Village started his first shop in 2006, and it quickly grew to multiple other locations. And interestingly enough, his former employer and mentor was Bikram 
Shadhori, and famously Bikram was and is embroiled in sexual assault allegations among a lot of other shit. And he basically fed the country and apparently people still go to wherever he is to learn from him. I want to say he's in South America and he's the definition of a cult leader in my mind. There's a very informative documentary about him on Netflix called Bikram. And I recommend it because it really shows how people were simultaneously so drawn to him and so repulsed to him and it how long it took for so many practitioners to realize what a scumbag he is because they really saw him as this charismatic leader. And I think that's a common theme we've seen with, you know, Epstein and and every everything we hear of like this, it kind of starts with that where it's a lot of people aware of it and then a lot of people in denial. So just to give you the framework that that's who Greg learned from. Now, Yoga to the People abruptly shut down in July of this year. And people thought it was just because of the pandemic, but something much darker was lurking. And this story reminded me so much of a mixture of the Bikram story and the Nexium cult. If you've heard of that one, it's the one famously known for branding people with hot irons. But there's honestly so much more to that story and there's a great podcast on it. And they delve into all the kind of psychological warfare that the cult leader inflicted. And I saw some major similarities between what he did and what Greg did in this story. Also, I think I saw that there's a Nexium HBO documentary coming out soon. So I will definitely watch that and let you guys know what I think. So this all partially came to light because of an Instagram account called at YTTP Shadow Work. This page touts itself as a vessel to share experiences associated with yoga to the people. And at the time of this podcast, there are 192 posts, each one detailing something gross that went down there. Uh, then Vice News picked up an article and they did some digging about uh, the mini accusations and they cover some things in depth that the cut article doesn't talk about. But as you guys obviously know, this is a podcast about the cut. So we're going to focus on their article today. So really where a lot of the drama went down was at the Vinyasa teacher training sessions and they referred to them as TT. They cost around $3,000 and took 10 weeks to complete. And I looked up and a 200 hour training course is usually between one to three K and more advanced programs and certifications cost around one to seven K. So I'm not sure if comparatively the cost of this was so exorbitant. It seems kind of in the range of what it would be. And People described the environment as very high pressure. They'd be pressured to adopt restrictive vegan diets and sort of just conform to the atmosphere that was YTTP. And you're probably thinking, okay, this doesn't sound too bad, but, you know, just wait. We're going to get into it more. So apparently where shit really hit the fan was at the part of training called Arm Raising Weekend. And the cut says that multiple people they talked to described this weekend as traumatic And I also want to interrupt to say that many people who spoke to The Cut and Vice spoke anonymously because they were worried about being blackballed from other studios and the perception it would have on them. So it actually seems like people were kind of scared about openly talking about this. And a lot of people did give their names, but in both articles, there were anonymous sources. Back to Arm Raising Weekend. So first, they would do a dynamic mediation, no, sorry guys, meditation and scream and dance, which doesn't sound meditative to me at all. And then there would be an hour-long arm-raising session. So this wasn't explained really well to me, and I feel like I should have tried to look up a video of it, but it says they would raise and lower their arms for an hour. 
Now, I'm sort of under the impression that most exercises can be done for an hour, even the most brutal ones, and I am a complete wimp and really not athletic, but damn, for some reason, this seemed to really fuck people up, and during this during this thing, students would be screaming and crying, so for some reason, this must have been very painful. Like they must have been just having to hold their arms up for such a long period of time. It reminded me of like what the survivor contestants must feel like. Cause I feel like they're always having to like hold shit up or balance on it and just do it for hours. And I'm, I always look at that. I was like, Oh no, I'd break like anytime on survivor where they're like, Oh, you can take the food or you can, you know, do this gruesome task for an hour. I'd be like, give me that ice cream cone, baby. So after the arm raising, they do a secret circle uh, where they would be pressured to tell their most dark secrets and something that they had never told anyone before. So the way it was work is they would sit in a circle and they would say something like, like it was dark, like I've experienced sexual assault. My name's Bailey and I've experienced sexual assault. I haven't, sorry. I'm just, we're pretending here. And then the next, they would turn to the next person and the next person would say, Bailey has experienced sexual assault and I... Susie M. Gay. So, and it would just go on like that, where you would repeat what the person before you said and then share your traumatic secret. Because as this explained, usually they were very traumatic secrets, stuff that people didn't really want to share with strangers they had just met. Now, I hate icebreakers. If you tell me I have to sit in a circle and tell a most fun fact about myself, I die a little inside. So I could not imagine having to tell my deepest darkest secret and traumatic event in front of a group of people that I don't know when that's not really what you're signing up for at a yoga training in my opinion it's not like you're signing up to have this group therapy session so I don't know I would hate it by the way I always say as my icebreaker that Justin Bieber sat on my lap once in case you were wondering so one of the students referred to it as trauma bonding and I think that's kind of a common thing that a lot of cults use because when you've experienced something together that you deem is pretty effed up, it's a bonding experience. When you go through something hard together, when you go through something happy together, I think experiences that cause a big spike in emotion, they're going to bond people together. And the article noted that one student died by suicide shortly after her arm raising weekend. And it's unclear if the two events are related, but I thought it was worth noting on here. So moving on, once they completed training, apparently it was pretty exploitative how much they got played, paid for classes. Guys, this is like when my one glass of wine starts setting in and I apparently can't talk. So what would happen is they'd be told, okay, you can get $35 per class, but Ultimately, they'd have to get there 30 minutes early and then 30 minutes after to close up. So basically, they were working two hours and only getting paid $17.5 per hour. And then Madeline writes, Employees described a pervasive sense at Y2TP that if you didn't look a certain way or behave agreeably enough, you would be punished. Navigating the strict company culture was particularly difficult for employees of color who said they had to deal with offensive, ignorant comments from management. Employees explained they often felt tokenized. A Spanish instructor was told they had to speak English because this is America. Black people were often featured in promo shoots. And sadly, this sort of sounds like what we hear about so many corporate cultures today. Uh, Under eating was glorified. A student said that a teacher told a story about a monk who ate only bean sprouts every day, and then he finally splurged and ate peas with butter. He had an orgasm. 
Yeah, I I mean, butter is amazing, but you chose to put it on peas. Like that was your splurge, not like a big fat piece of chocolate cake. That's an awful, awful story. I hate it. So now let's talk more about the owner, Greg Gamucho. Gamucho was described as mercurial, jovial and charming one minute and drawing people in with his praise only to suddenly flip and become aggressive and enraged the next. Sometimes he would wine and dine employees, taking them out to lavish restaurants and paying for expensive dinners before inviting staff to hang out at his apartment until the early hours of the morning. At these dinners, drinks flowed freely and the conversation often veered to the personal. One of the girls said she was invited to one of Gamucho's infamous sinners when she was only 19. Despite being underage, a fact she believes YTT staff knew, she was served several drinks. Gamucho, she said, kept asking her questions about her romantic relationship. And from what I read, this was a common theme. He loved going to Lura Fish Bar in New York. For some reason, that was his place. And he asked the young workers about their sex lives, which, barf. And on top of that, he is a convicted felon. He pleaded guilty to two felony charges in the 80s, forgery and motor vehicle theft. And then he was accused of rape in August 2004. Now, my thought on convicted felons is that if you convict a felony, you should be allowed to vote. You should be allowed to live your life how you want it. I think the restrictions on convicted felons are very, very harsh. Um... And I'm not talking necessarily about sex acts. I'm more talking about like nonviolent convicted felons um, or just people, you know, who have served their time, even if it was, you know, for drugs, whatever. I think they should be allowed to vote. I think that they should be allowed to freely rent houses. One of the first people who showed interest in renting my duplex was a convicted felon. And I was like amped for it, honestly, because he was like, I'm really handy. And I was like, dude, you're handy. Like, yeah, sign me up. Unfortunately, he never called me back, but I was down for it. So I'm not saying that he should be villainized for the fact that he was a convicted felon. But do I think maybe it was some red flags? Yeah. So many women described him as touching them inappropriately. And another common theme that I see in a lot of these stories that are in the same vein is that one of the former employees said that they had wished they had left earlier, but fear kept them in their position for years. They mess with your psyche. They said they make it seem like you won't survive anywhere else. And then Madeline ends with, it isn't clear what consequences if any YTTP leadership will face in light of these allegations or if they plan to revive the company. On July 31st, two former YTTP teachers texted the cut to point out that the Yoga to the People Instagram account, which had briefly been deactivated, was back up. So it's, and then it says, in the meantime, those speaking out in the press and on Instagram hope that in doing so, they can help those who suffered at YTTP to find some measure of peace. And again, I think the Vice article went way more into the kind of predatory measures that Greg was guilty of and way more clear circumstances of sexual assault. But again, I just wanted to share that drama with you in case you want to look into it a little more. Let's get on to something lighter. How was there already this much Bachelorette drama? Again, by Madeline Aguilar. So you might remember Claire Crawley. She was on Juan Pablo's season. She was on Bachelor in Paradise, Winter Games. Girl has been around the Bachelor franchise block. And when she got cast, I was excited because I was like, oh, maybe it'll be older men and not 22-year-old fuckboys who have no desire to get married and want to grow their Instagram following to a million plus. 
Um, and that was really my only excitement about it because I've said on here a lot of times, I really haven't watched the past few seasons, like maybe four or five of the, of the franchise, even though I was like an OG watcher and I was let down because while they did cast some older men, they still ended up casting a ton of young people. So I already got less excited and then it just became such an unconventional season because of COVID it was delayed, and we talked about a few episodes back how Matt James, who's friends with Tyler Cameron, he was on Hannah Brown season. Matt James hadn't even been aired on a show and was chosen to be a Bachelor, and we're all hype about that. He's hot. He's educated. He's he's black. He's the first black Bachelor. Great. Everyone was happy with that choice, but you could tell at that point that there was already a shift up in the men that were going to be on Claire's season. So... <laughs> Fast forward to when Claire actually started recording and she'd only been recording for a little bit and then all these rumors started cropping up that she had actually walked away. And the first rumors that came up said she just basically was being so difficult that the producers didn't want to work with her anymore. But now it's come to light that maybe she walked away because she's actually in love with someone named Dale Moss. He's like a ex-NFL player, a model, and I was trying to get some juice from Reality Steve to see what he said. Now, he's thinking that maybe her and Dale actually kind of knew each other before filming even started. And again, with COVID, it's unclear if that just they connected once she knew he was going to be he was going to be on her season. And my problem with Bachelor drama is always that I think that the franchise is kind of shady when it comes to publicity as far as like Mike Fleiss goes and... They love to create drama before the season comes out. Obviously, it's good business. It's going to get more eyeballs on their content and their TV show. So the most recent rumor is that Taysha Adams, who was on Colton's season, is going to replace Claire as the new Bachelor. And with that, there's going to be another shakeup of the men and that it's actually going to start filming with her. So I, I just don't know where this is going. I... <sighs> I'm so interested to see. I think it would be great if it is Taysha. Again, we'd for the first we'd have a black bachelor and a black bachelorette. And as I've said on here so many times, it's like sometimes does it take all of this shit for a good outcome to come from it? Yeah. And as long as the outcome's good, then I think we can all be happy that it's happening that way. I'm sorry, I didn't read any one of Madeline said. I just am like rambling on my own. I gave you no concrete details. But again, this is my point. It's like they keep everything kind of shady. You don't really know what's going on. They're basically like that gaslighting boyfriend you don't really want in your life. So if let's say really just blow my socks off in these two seasons, I just, I mean, I don't know. I just want to get on board and I'm not there yet. <sighs> okay. Next up, I wanted to give a little Indian matchmaking update because I spoke about it last week and I said, you know, I didn't want to be this white woman talking about the impact on Indian culture. So I'm so glad that our girl Sanjita wrote an article about it. And this article was so cool because it gives a glimpse into her mom's past. So let's get into that. And it says, criticize Indian matchmaking all you want by Sanjita Singh Kurtz. 
Where my mother grew up in a traditional Sikh Indian community in Manchester, it was a given she'd get an arranged marriage. The process kicked off when she was 19, when the area's hottest matchmakers, elderly twin sisters, brought the first candidate, a misogynistic gynecologist, to her family home. They spoke in the kitchen, her mother pretending to wash dishes in the background, and her brother hiding in a cupboard, eavesdropping. In the first few minutes, the gyno told her she'd be dropping her nursing career to look after his permanently bedridden mother, and my mom told him to get lost. Thus, the beginning of her matchmaking experience ended almost as soon as it began. So then she goes on to say that in other more conservative Indian families, her mom's input wouldn't have mattered at all and that it would have just been suppressed and she basically would have been married by the end of the week. Now, this was over 30 years ago and her mom said it was strange to see something that sort of looked like her own experience on Indian matchmaking. And I was actually listening to an interview with Aparna who I talked about last week because again, I wanted to get her on the podcast. So I listened to her on Kate Kennedy and she brought up some really interesting points that she was like, you know, maybe some experiences are that they just get thrown into a marriage, even if it's arranged, but that there is a lot of autonomy and more than I think people give credit. And if, even if you look at Ashgate on the show, him and his wife's name, I'm sorry, I can't remember it. They, they were both able to make a choice and they had both been given a ton of options before they did kind of get thrown into this quote unquote arranged marriage. And Another thing that I actually meant to talk about before was that this show was produced by Smitri Mundra, and she made a documentary on the topic of matchmaking in 2017 called A Suitable Girl, and Sanjita describes it as a broad and bitter portrait of traditional matchmaking in India, and I really, really want to watch it because I think it would be interesting to contrast it with Indian matchmaking, and Sanjita points out that the show failed to represent other more sordid experiences, the man's the demands for exorbitant dowries that accompany many traditional arranged marriages in India and the often painful experiences of people like my mother who marry not only outside of the system but outside of their race. In India and its diaspora, abandoning this institution and its limited standards engenders everything from social outrage to violence. But Indian matchmaking wasn't trying to argue for or against arranged marriage or even interrogate its problems. And maybe that does feel like a missed opportunity. I wanted a big mainstream dating show for South Asian people, explains Mundra. I wanted something South Asians could see themselves in. And when it comes to the tradition of arranged marriage, Mundra says she simply wanted to lay it all out to put it up for debate. Does Indian matchmaking do that? I'm not sure that it does. And many of the desis and credits I've come across don't seem to think so either. So obviously I give way more heed to their opinions than anything that I think. But I do think anytime you can open up a dialogue and see different perspectives, and unfortunately maybe that does take people delving into Indian Americans and Indian voices online and their thoughts about it, I do think it is beneficial. So again, I think if you haven't seen it yet, Give it a watch. Give me your thoughts on it. And again, we have one from Sanjita. This has basically just become an ode to Sanjita. Everything, every article is by her. And again, I don't purposely pick ones from her, guys. It's just everything I want to talk about, she happened to write. So last up, we have how to build a sex scene. I wanted to talk about this article because haven't we all watched a sex scene and thought, hmm, how did they make that look so realistic? Was that so awkward for the actors? And this answered a lot of questions I had. And I think 
the position of an intimacy coordinator is so great and I can only hope that every show implements this position in the future. So this is an interview with Ida O'Brien who was the intimacy coordinator on Normal People and I May Destroy You which is Michaela Cole's fictionalized story of her real life rape and Normal People is based on a novel. I haven't seen either one of these shows. I watched one episode of Normal People and I just like couldn't really get into it. And maybe it's because it was a little too intimate for me because I hate when they do like extreme close-ups and you can hear people's like breathing and their lip movements and stuff. It like makes my brain hurt a little bit. But I know a lot of people love that show and are obsessed with the main characters and think it's super sexy. So intimacy coordinators play a new role in the entertainment industry. As the name implies, they oversee and help direct intimate scenes. Unfortunately, hiring one has become more common post the Me Too movement. And she just describes her process, and I was enthralled throughout this whole article. First, she talks to the director about camera angles and positions, and she makes sure that the director has spoken with the actors. Then she checks with the actors to see if they are okay with stimulated sexual conduct, nudity, and touch. And then each day on set, she will ask them what they are okay with that day specifically, i.e. she'll say, are you okay with your face being held today? Are you okay with your neck being held today? And throughout this interview, she likens her position to stunt coordinators. And I can totally see this being the case because I've actually been watching a lot of Michelle Carey's YouTube videos lately. Guys, another person I have asked to be on this podcast who just straight up just doesn't answer me. I again thought I had an in because she's a Dartmouth grad. She's a famous YouTuber, though. She has like over 2 million subscribers on YouTube. But she was actually at Dartmouth the same time I was there. She's one year below me. And... One of the things that she really got a lot of popularity before was that she trains like superheroes. So she'll train like Spider-Man. She'll train like Black Widow. And every time she does that, she's working with these really high up stunt coordinators. And it's so thought out. And every move, it really is like a dance and you're hitting your mark. And it's so specific. And so much goes into choreographing just like 30 seconds of a stunt scene. So the fact that this position didn't exist before is kind of mind-blowing just because of everything that goes into making it look right so I found this next part also very intriguing it says if an actor is comfortable with the degree of nudity and there's no touch then it's absolutely fine for them to be naked so obviously actors can be full-on naked that's why you'll see like a lot of like back things and you'll see like their whole butt whatever like that's allowed or even full frontals they can do that but if there's stimulated sexual content and there wants to be an inference of nudity then the ladies will have to wear a genitalia patch, which is like G-string with the sides cut off. And the men have to wear a genitalia pouch, which is like a sack which holds their genitals and their penis, and it's tied up. (laughs) A little penis pouch. (laughs) And it says, we work with a whole level of flesh-colored modesty garments, pouches, G-strings, dance bells, shorts, bananas, bras, camisoles. And we put in place other things like cushions or blankets, so there's another barrier between the two actors. And... It was also a little heartbreaking reading this because she says that before these type of positions, there was a lot of predatory and abusive behavior when it came to this. And it says it was left dismissed and not discussed. And the director might say to the actor, just get in front of camera and do it. And the poor actors were half in their personal selves, half in their professional selves, trying to do their best. It wasn't repeatable and they didn't get the right camera angles. That's also where unsafe or awkward or harassment situations occurred. And she tells this story, which I really think highlights the necessity of this type of position and it says that in I May Destroy You there was a scene where 
one of the characters has a threesome and Waruchi Opia, who's the actress, was not comfortable doing any stimulated sexual content. So she shared that with the production and with Michaela. And then they hired a body double and the body double did it for her. And it says for Waruchi in the past, she may have really wanted that job and she would have done the scene and it would have really compromised her. So this allows her to not have to do that. And her boundaries were respected and you still have a scene that serves the storytelling of the piece. So again, I just thought this was so great and so informative. So thank you, Sanjita. Thank you, Ida O'Brien. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing about that too. On to legit shit for the week. I think this might be the most expensive legit shit I've ever shared. So I'm also going to share a little cheaper one. But it's my Capra 1976 chain necklace. I love it so much. I sleep in it. I wear it every day. It's all gold. I just love it. So I wanted to share it with you guys if you're looking for a really great gold chain necklace. And then my next legit shit is at Jason underscore Erler. E-R-L-E-R underscore art. As usual, all of the articles we discussed and my legit shit is linked in the show description. He makes really cool pieces and I bought one during quarantine and it was only $50 and $50 for a hand painted piece. I just feel like it's so rare these days when a lot of times prints cost more than that and it might not be your style, but I think his stuff is so cool. So check it out if you're interested at all in some new art for your place. And I'm going to leave you with part of a song by Nicholas Braun, a.k.a. Greg from Succession, called Antibodies. And if you want to check it out and donate to the cause, you can go to doyouhavetheantibodies.com. All right, I'll see you next week. Bye, guys. I want a girl whose blood's got the stuff. I want a girl who's safe. I want to hold you in my arms and not be afraid to breathe. I've been waiting patiently. I obeyed the rules And now I'm ready to break them on you No more sending nudes If you come within six feet It's mask on, mask on, mask on, mask on But if you got antibodies It's pants off, pants off, pants off, pants off Do you have the antibodies?